the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. At the end of my prayer there, I alluded to the idea of waiting, which is uh, not exactly something that we do very well in America, is it? Waiting isn't something we do particularly well as people living in a land of plenty where we have whatever we want at a moment's notice. We live in sort of instant gratification America. On this phone in my hand, I can, with just a few clicks, without paying for gas, without spending uh, the time to go to the store, uh, which would take me probably ten times as long to do, with this phone, I can order at a 15% discount something like all of the groceries except for dairy and meats on my phone to come to me on a regular basis. And I did some price comparison. And I can go to Amazon.com on my phone and with a few clicks order my groceries and subscribe to them on a recurring basis cheaper than you can go and faster than you can go to Food City or Ingalls. That is a world where we can have it all and we can have it all kind of now. We live in a world where the average grocery store in America, has 50,000 items on the shelves of each store. The average number of products carried by a typical supermarket in America has more than tripled since 1980 from about 15,000 just 30 years ago to about 50,000 today. If you were out shopping the last few days, you might have experienced sort of that dizzying feeling of lots of options. Has anybody here tried to buy toothpaste lately? Just trying to buy toothpaste can be a paralyzing experience if you're anything like me. If you want something that will just plain clean your teeth, good luck with that because most toothpaste nowadays has another seven built-in features, so good luck finding something that just says it will clean your teeth. When you stand in the shopping aisles, we choose from a plethora of options. We have 10 varieties of apples, 20 brands of paper towels, and 30 varieties of bread every time we go to the store. And so in a world, in in kind of a consumer world where we have tons of options, which I kind of like having options, but, but in a world like that, waiting begins to seem and even literally feel pointless, needless. Waiting even begins to feel sort of quaint and kind of old-fashioned, like it's something from a bygone era. Because we live in a world of instant gratification, endless options, unrestrained information at the click of a button. And so in a world like that, waiting seems to be the mark of sort of a, a sort of a silly past, a puritanical, old-fashioned kind of past. Now, I know that I'm a product of this world. I know that I'm a product of this world because I find myself occasionally being annoyed when I'm shopping, maybe looking for shoes at Walmart, and, and, and I think to myself this kind of thought. Maybe you've stood there and you've thought this kind of thing. I can't believe Walmart only has seven brands of running shoes. 
because I can't find exactly what I want in exactly the color I want exactly when I want it. And I begin to actually think those things and have this physical response of being annoyed at having to wait. Now, it may sound a little ridiculous, but, but isn't that how many of us actually begin to feel? We, we physiologically respond in those kinds of ways. I'd venture to say that most of us who went out shopping the last week or so probably had to stand in line. Probably had to stand in line, and, and there might have been lots of cash registers not open, but there were four or five that were open, and you, you're looking as you're approaching, and, and you see you know, a couple people in one, but there are three or four in all the others, so you go to the two, and inevitably, of course, that other line seems to go twice as fast, and you're sitting there waiting for them, thinking to yourself, for goodness sakes, why doesn't Food City open the other 17 registers that are available? I mean, why are they not catering to me? We've all kind of felt that in those experiences. Turns out we aren't the only ones who struggle with patience, who struggle with waiting. Turns out this has been a problem for a long, long time. You see, the Israelites, God's chosen people, were not very good at waiting either. Those of you who have been in the Old Testament survey class in Fellowship Hall I've been studying this recently. The Israelites, the people of God, were impatient with God. And that impatience is a stark contrast from the many blessings that they experienced as God's people. They had been promised a land of blessing, it was called, where God would prosper them beyond their wildest dreams. They had already experienced that in the history of their people. They had been promised a relationship with a holy God who would forgive their sin. They had, they had the promise of, of being the people through whom God would bless the whole world. They had the promise of being part of God's plan of redemption. And God told them this time and time and time again. He made it explicit to Abraham. Look at Genesis, the 18th chapter, if you've got a second. Sorry, I accidentally lied. We'll start in Genesis, not in Isaiah. In Genesis, the 18th chapter, verses 17 through 19 there. Abraham is the father. He's the first of God's people. And God said to Abraham, he said this, Genesis 18:17 Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him Of course the answer to that rhetorical question is no I'm not going to hide it I'm going to make it clear And he says that in the next verse verse 19 this is this is God speaking to Abraham's, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God made it clear what the blessings and the promise looked like. God made it clear that he would take care of his people if they would put their faith and their trust in him. God made it crystal clear in the Ten Commandments, for example, what this faith looked like, lived out. The only condition, 
The only condition of these promises for the people of God was faith in God. The only condition was faith. But the Israelites didn't like God's method and they didn't like his timetable. Abraham and the people of God, they got, they got impatient time and again. They took matters into their own hands and they tried to clean up their own messes. They wanted their needs met exactly as they wanted them met and they want them met exactly when they wanted them met. It was sort of a, I want it my way right away and I don't want to have to sit around and wait for you, God. It's sort of a fast food faith kind of thing. They complained when the food wasn't good enough, when they were in the wilderness. They jealously begged for a king because the other nations had one, and they, they ached for a military warrior, a commander who would set them free from earthly captivity. And what they didn't realize is that none of those work. None of those methods work to take care of the real problem. The real problem of hearts that are far from God. And so they looked for temporary fixes for earthly concerns. And they began to learn a lesson that is hard for us to learn. There is no quick, there is no easy fix for the problem of sin. And we certainly are not equipped to be that fix for that problem. No matter, no matter how hard we try to be judge and jury for our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of all, all the others around us, there is no easy fix for sin because rebellion against God is deadly serious business. And just like we have experienced, just like the people of God of old experienced, there are consequences to that. So by the time Isaiah the prophet came onto the scene, by the time Isaiah the prophet came to them to speak the words of God, the people of God had lost faith in his promises. They were done waiting on God. They were tired of doing it God's way and in His timetable. And so their faith was weak. Their faith became faith in idols, faith in their own system, faith in something that will do it faster and in a way that I want it done. And there were natural consequences to that. They knew that there would be consequences. And so by the time Isaiah the prophet came around, they were in exile. They were held captive in a land that was not their own, in a land that was not the promised land. Now they were, for a time, cut off from the promised land, and at least so they thought, the hope of a promised Messiah who would make up for their sin as God had promised. Now they were in exile, in Babylon of all places, a godless place. They were defeated. They were bitter. They were disillusioned. The years 
in exile that the Jews spent there were some of the darkest hours in the nation's history. And it is to this context that God sent the prophet Isaiah, who was a messenger of God, crying out for hope. Hello, my name is Isaiah, and I'm a prophet of Jehovah God. In my lifetime, I've seen a great many things. My people, the children of Israel, were once a great nation. She once was full of justice, and righteousness used to dwell in her. But now, murderers, her rulers are rebels, companions of thieves, They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I will turn My hand against you. So I preach this message to the people. But to no avail. It all seems so hopeless. The darkness of sin closes in around My people. And exile is certain. If they would only hear. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Uh, Maybe you don't know this, but they had Paul Point pens back then. Isaiah talked about calling God to rend down the heavens. He was crying out for revival for a people who were in the midst of darkness, who felt alienated as a stranger in a different land. They felt like God had abandoned them. And Isaiah the prophet comes to that kind of context. And God sends him to be the mouthpiece for the truth of God. To bring revival to a people who are dark, who are experiencing sin, who are exiled and held captive by a foreign land. You would expect 
You would expect a holy, infinite, perfect, majestic God, incredibly far beyond our best thoughts of Him, to come in a kind of way that would rend down the heavens and bring His glory on the people in a way that they couldn't possibly fathom and that they couldn't possibly bear the weight of. You know, God could do that. It would be deserved. But surprisingly, the message of Isaiah, though glory of God will be shown in its full power someday, is that we live in that time between where we do not experience the devastation of Him rending down the heavens, but we experience something that is surprisingly comforting in the middle of darkness and frustration and bitterness and disillusionment. God brings comfort and He brings peace in a surprising kind of way that the people never expected. Although it seems dark, I'm comforted by the words of the psalmist. Sorrow will last the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I have seen the morning. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rugged places will become level and the rough places will be made plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. The Lord will give us a sign. A surprising sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call Him Emmanuel. The people walking in darkness we'll see a great light. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon His shoulders. And He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And when this child has grown, The Spirit of the Lord will be upon Him because the Lord has anointed Him to preach the good news to the poor. He will bind the brokenhearted and He will proclaim freedom for us, the captives. Comfort. Comfort My people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So Isaiah the prophet came speaking a message of hope in the midst of darkness. <clears throat> but for the people of God, they didn't yet know what that hope would look like. They still struggled with their systems. They struggled with wanting a king, a judge, a warrior, someone who would set the record straight on their own terms. And so waiting became hard. Waiting became difficult. What do we do, Lord, while we wait for You to come in power and might as You've promised? Isn't that where we are now? Isn't that the life we live? With the frustration of sin still affecting our relationships, living in an imperfect world, and yet at the same time being people of hope who know that this world is not all there is. And so God continued to be the shepherd who took care of His sheep. Who gathered the flock. And He gave them a calling. He gave them a purpose. He gave them a direction. Like Isaiah, like John the Baptist, like Mary, Elizabeth, and Simeon. All throughout the Scriptures from the old through the new. He gave us a purpose like them to be people who pointed to the Christ's coming. Even though there is a Messiah who will come and set the captives free, I wonder just who will He set free? We all know that Jehovah comes to help those who gladly do right and remember His ways. But when we continue to sin against Him, how then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Yet, the Lord is our Father. He, we are but clay, but He alone is the potter. We are all the work of His hands. In this dark time, do not be angry with us beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray, for we are all Your people. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Thanks, Isaiah. <clears throat> I'd like to invite you, if you don't already have them open, to turn to Isaiah 40. <clears throat> I want you to notice a few things in these passages, starting with Isaiah 40. <clears throat> I want to give you a little, little history of the gospel and explain what the gospel has to do with Advent, with the Christmas season. <clears throat> we'll be in Isaiah 40 there, about halfway through your Bible. The main purpose of the Old Testament book of Isaiah is simply this, if you're taking notes. Isaiah was written to announce God's surprising plan of grace for a faithless people. That's the message of Isaiah in large-scale terms. Isaiah was written to announce God's surprising plan of grace for a faithless people. It's a surprising plan because the righteous requirements of God's law requires perfect adherence. It requires 100% perfect adherence and following of God's law. And even though God's people had turned it into a self-achievable system of works righteousness as we tend to do, God graciously accepted His own righteousness in their place, in the place of our sinful rebellion. In other words, God knew all along that His righteous requirements of the law could not be met by us and would have to be met by Himself and by Christ's perfectly, graciously, done-for-us work. So look at verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah there. This is a, a prophetic foretelling. This is talking beforehand about what happens later of the peace that God will bring to His people. And that's the surprising plan. It says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity, her sin, is pardoned. Now skip forward to verse 9 for just a second there. This surprising plan of God's grace is such a great message that it deserves to be proclaimed. And this is where we first see that word gospel and uh, where we get our modern word gospel uh, in the Old Testament, it says this, verse 9, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, herald of good news. It says it twice. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. If you're a circler like me, circle that phrase, herald of good news, there in verse 9. It says it twice. This is one of the first places where we find the concept of the Gospel. It just is a word that means good news. Now, follow closely in a minute uh, here. We're going to go to some cool things. Turn to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We just heard that read to us. In my Bible, there's a section there that calls that the year of the Lord's favor. Most uh, modern Bibles have a, have a title for their sections there. Uh, it's the year of the Lord's favor. That comes from verse 2 there in that passage, 61, 1 and 2. When Jesus arrives, it announces that year, that, that time of God's favor. And it announces the coming of the kingdom, the coming of God's reign on earth. This is Advent. When God announces the good news that sin is made up for. The key phrase here, to announce God's plan of grace is good news, just like we just read. It says this, 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isaiah is saying this as if he's the Messiah. He's prophetically foretelling this coming out of the Messiah's mouth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, there's that word, to the poor. The NIV, I think, says preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Remember, these people were in exile. They were captive to a foreign nation. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Now look at Luke 4, starting at uh, verse 16 there. Luke 4. Verse 16. Jesus was coming out of the wilderness, if you'll remember, out of his time of testing and of preparation. And so this is the very beginning of his public ministry. It says this in Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This is sort of like our preaching in our worship service. They would read the passage, and uh, some would make, would make comment on it. So this is, in a sense, Jesus' first public sermon. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. Verse 18, the Spirit 
of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, at freedom, those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, standing there, knowing all of Israel's history and its past and its struggle of relationship with God, knowing that they were a people in exile, fully aware of what He was claiming as He stood there, He opens up to Isaiah that scroll handed to him, turns to that passage and reads about being anointed to proclaim good news. And then he sits down and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All of those people sitting there in that service knew exactly what was going on. And Jesus stands up and he drops a bomb. And he says, I am am the Messiah. This is being fulfilled and everything that was ever wrong with every person in the entire universe is able to be made right now. Because we live in the year of the Lord's favor. This word from Jesus, from our past, from the history of the people of God, cannot be ignored today. It came straight from Jesus. It came from Isaiah. Even before Jesus came on the scene and Isaiah came on the scene, in the beginning in creation it says, God created. He created out of the infinite goodness of Himself. Out of His infinite goodness and beauty and majesty, He created things that in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are called good things. And so when an infinite, perfect, and holy God, whose very nature and heart is goodness, creates things that are described as good, we call that news that is good. And what's good is that straight from the heart of God Himself, we have available to us here and now, like the people of old, and until He comes in full power, we have victory from any sin. We have freedom from all captivity. And we can experience being saved by the God who comes to rescue us from darkness. That we create. Christmas is about preparing our hearts and minds for the coming of Christ into our lives all over again if need be, for the first time if need be. Because He comes to rescue us from ourselves. There was a family once that was vacationing at the lake one summer and And dad had been sort of puttering out by the boathouse. And two of his sons, one was a 12-year-old and the other a 3-year-old, were were out playing by the dock while dad was off by the boathouse. And a 
Of course, the 12-year-old was supposed to be watching the 3-year-old, and the 12-year-old gets distracted. And, of course, the 3-year-old sees that shiny little aluminum fishing boat down at the end and, and walks down toward the end of the dock and steps on to the, to the boat and, and falls in. So the water is about five to six feet deep. And the splash, of course, alerted the 12-year-old who started to scream. And, and Dad uh, saw and uh, jumps into the water. Couldn't see anything. Uh, murky. It was dark. It was uh, dirty water. Uh, but he was panicking, looking for his son. He went down to the bottom and, 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 and reached all over the place and, and couldn't find him the first time. Ran out of air, comes up, gets a breath. He goes back down. And as he's about to come back up, he finally feels on his way up little Billy, that three-year-old, his arm that was locked around one of the posts of the dock, a death grip he would not let go about four foot underneath, four feet underneath the water. Just sitting there holding on, holding his breath. Well, the dad finally pries his, his, his hands and, and arms off and, and takes him up. And they're, they're gasping for air. They finally get a breath and... When all the adrenaline had stopped and, and they'd calmed down a bit, the father asked his son, What on earth were you doing down there hanging on to the post four feet underneath the water? Why were you holding on below? And little Billy's answer was a classic answer that was laced with the kind of wisdom only a toddler can give. He said, I was just holding on, waiting for you, Dad. I was just holding on, waiting for you. How often, friends, have we waited for everything other than the only one who can come save us? The gospel is a message that we are created to be people who proclaim that story to people who need to know them, to, who need to know that kind of rescue and Savior, to ourselves, to one another, to people who don't know Him. Advent's a time for us to prepare our lives and our hearts and our minds for that kind of life. Let's pray.